you might find somebody who has more experience than me who is more qualified to be a weather presenter and a reporter, but you won't find anybody that'll work as hard as I will because I want this. This is, this is something that I want and this will change my life. And because it'll change my life, I will give it everything I have. Hello everyone, Nadessa here and back again with episode 95 of the Assyrian podcast. For today's episode, I sat down with Rita Ismail of London, Ontario here in Canada. Rita is a weekend anchor, videographer, and weather presenter for Canada's most watched news organization, CTV News. Her media career began at an early age doing the hour news updates and co-hosting a radio show at her college. She eventually graduated with a degree in broadcast journalism and communications and landed a job in the industry almost immediately. We talked about what the job entailed in the interview, as well as where she is now. As you listen to this episode, you'll quickly witness Rita's passion for the work she does. She's got this grit that makes you want to work towards accomplishing your goals no matter what it takes. She's been able to utilize her platform to bring awareness about Assyrians and their struggles and stories, as well as the realities of parenthood, which sometimes includes topics a lot of people don't talk about, but they are experiences that so many share. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Rita and learning more about what drives her. For our listeners from the United States, here's a quick word about the 2020 census. Every 10 years, the United States completes a census nationwide to essentially get a count of everyone who lives in the country. These counts are important because they give the government a sense of the demographic makeup of the nation. Various organizations have unified in an effort to ensure that every Assyrian in the United States is counted in the 2020 census. Here's how you can make sure you're counted as an Assyrian. Under the race section, check other and write Assyrian in the space provided. For more information regarding the 2020 census, please go to www.2020census.gov. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. And without further ado, here's Rita. Your journey began in Baghdad, Iraq. That's where you were born? Yes, so I was born in Baghdad, Iraq when I was five years old. We had to leave. It was 1990, so we had to escape. So we took a one-way flight out. My dad, my older brother and sister, and then my younger sister, we left to Greece with literally just our luggage and the clothes on our back. And I know that sounds cliche, but there was no other option. And the turmoil that was happening in that country at the time, my dad was like, this is the best decision. So we moved to Greece in 1990 and lived there for three years. When we arrived there, we were kind of in this like refugee acceptance home. Uh, We weren't in any camps or anything, but it was a house that had one bedroom a kitchen and a washroom and we shared it with 30 people and we did not know the other families my mom's uncle was also there but it was just thinking back now it was unbelievable because you know my mom had a three-month-old she was breastfeeding and she had 
three other kids. So four kids under 10 left everything behind and had to start with nothing. And I remember my sister, like my younger sister, when she would cry, my mom would nurse her right away because she didn't want her to wake up or bother the other people that lived in the house. And so the three years we spent in Greece, my parents worked number of jobs. And then my grandma, uh, my dad's mom, she she was there as well. And she would stay with us while my parents would work. And I remember it being a constant struggle, but they didn't let us know that. Like my parents weren't like, you know, when you're living through it as a child, I don't think you grasp what it actually is until you look back and you're like, no, that wasn't okay. Like, you know, we had nothing. Luckily for us, my mom, family so my grandparents and my uncles they sponsored us to come to Canada and we were given the visa and left in 1993 so we came to Canada April 26th I believe of 1993 and again we had nothing so we lived with my grandparents for six months your other set of grandparents were already here my grandma had actually left uh, a few months before my dad's mom to america because Mm. that's where my dad's side of the family is and has always been my mom's side was here so at the time when we were waiting to see where we would end up when we were in greece it was either australia america or canada Mm. and we just got our paperwork to come to canada first so i mean this could have gone a completely different direction but Luckily for us, we came to Canada and lived with my grandparents for six months. And then my parents were able to rent a two bedroom apartment. And so we moved out into that. And that was in a rough area of Toronto, but it was the nicest of the buildings, the apartment buildings at the time. It had a gated community and it was all brand new. And my dad's whole, when I ask him about that, he'll say his whole goal when we arrived was to make sure that we didn't live in the slums because we had just spent three years doing that in in Greece Greece. so he paid and this was in 93 our rent was like $1,100 a month for a two-bedroom we lived there for three years that building that you were in was it the building because I've heard of a few buildings in Toronto where a lot of Assyrians would live in well I don't know if at the time they were but it was one round tree Mm. and so those three apartment buildings, one, three, and five round tree were like brand new. They had an ensuite washer and dryer and just simple things like that like were important to my parents. So because they wanted to maintain that, my dad worked night shift at a convenience store. He got held up multiple times at gunpoint, but it, he just had to do it. My mom was working at Tim Hortons and then the other odd jobs. And sometimes they'd have to leave us home alone, right? My brother would have been 10 or 11. So it was my brother, my sister. My younger sister would have been like three years old. But again, different time, right? So they had to do what they had to do to make sure that they brought in an income and we had a place to sleep and live. And then they applied for government housing. The list to get into government housing in Toronto was so backlogged. It was going to take anywhere between five to seven years. And my parents just didn't have a kind of time knowing that if we stayed there, they worried, I guess the community there and like the schools and things like that were just not, like there was a risk for us to go down the wrong path. So we actually were offered government housing in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So we moved into that in 96 and- Did you have anybody here? In Hamilton, no. My parents had like distant cousins or a friend that they knew, but us, Family-wise, no, we didn't have anyone here. And for those who don't know the distance between Hamilton and Toronto, it's about an hour 
but it is a big difference in at that time especially people didn't know about hamilton i think the assyrian community was very small it has since grown large amounts what year of people. was this that you moved 96, 96 yeah okay. so yeah. now we have a huge community here and it's amazing yeah. but at the time it was like we're starting fresh again i remember i went to like six different elementary schools there was never any consistency there was never like oh i grew up in this house you know, n- none of that we actually when we came to that house we moved a year later to another house because the first government house was townhome and then we moved to another house that just didn't have sufficient space and then we relocated again Mm. i know it was constantly moving from one home to another but my parents always always worked so hard and eventually they were able to save up enough money to buy our first home in hamilton and at that point i would have been in grade 10 or 11 so in high school and then we moved in there. So I guess technically Hamilton is home. And I, I do air quotes for our listeners because that's where I spent most of my life in Hamilton. And then, yeah, we lived in Hamilton for right. I went to college in Hamilton, Mohawk College. And then I moved to Toronto when I got my first job, which we can get into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say when you moved, when you all had to escape to Greece and then live there for a little bit and then move to Canada, specifically Toronto. I mean, you were at an age that you were old enough to kind of remember and recall all of that. In your mind, with the constant moving, like what was going on through your head? Like, did you find that to be... Were you like, oh, this is just normal? Or mm. were you like, hmm, there's something so, off? Good question. In Greece, when we got there, I was only five. So um, I know they say your memory kind of triggers when you're four or five years old. I remember arriving there. I remember what our house looked like exactly. I remember mm. going to Greek school and it was a struggle. I didn't speak a lick of the language. But by the three years, I learned to speak it fluently. It was amazing, but it was a big struggle. And then when we left to Canada... I had so much anxiety as a child. And again, back then that kind of stuff wasn't diagnosed. So I remember like constantly fearing going to school. I didn't speak it, I got bullied. I, I One of the things that kids would do is, <laughs> funny story, I had lice in Greece and they had no over-the-counter medicine medication or it just didn't work. I have thick, curly Assyrian hair. <laughs> so my mom shaved my head bald Adessa, no word of a lie so we come to Canada and my hair is gradually growing in I look like a little boy with a unibrow and I constantly got teased and oh it was just awful school to school so by the time you make friends you'd have to say bye to them and start all over again and that was really hard but I think that made me stronger and able to adapt to situations in my adult life right like I have no problem Uh, Now I live in London, Ontario. I've been there for five years. I had moved back to Toronto after college. So I have been back and forth by myself and with my husband and I can adapt more easily and I I attribute it to that. And growing up when you came here, what was the process like then to learn English and how did you acclimate to sort of Canadian culture? Mm. So uh, English as a second language, ESL is what it was called back then. And I remember I was in grade two. My sister is uh, two years older than me. 
so she was kind of brought into the ESL class. So mm-hmm. we'd have our normal classroom activities and then they'd pull you out to take the ESL courses. So I would get so excited because I just loved her so much. And I, it was a sense of home. So her, my brother, myself, and a couple of other kids who were from different countries, we'd come into this class and they'd be like literally holding up card and it was yellow and they'd be like yellow do you it was the craziest way of teaching you but I guess you learn by visuals when you're a newcomer so I learned and then I have a very fond memory of three months in to grade three after we had moved again I was able to read my very first children's book in front of my class and this Amazing. is such a vivid memory because you either remember things because they're they impact you negatively or positively. And this is my very first time I read a book. I held it, I read it, and I would show it to the class, like turn it around, show the picture. And I loved that feeling. And I think that's where it kind of sparked my passion to be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Like at a, that was my first memory of that. Third grade. Yeah, because I felt like I had achieved such a massive I don't know, like I had overcome a struggle where I didn't speak the language and now I could read and it just opened so many doors at that point. So from third grade, you had this built built confidence to Mm -hmm. be able to present in front of people and to story tell. And it was later on in high school that you had the opportunity to work within the news segment right with Mm -hmm. Mohawk College you got it yeah also in grade eight grade seven and eight I took over the morning announcements I don't know if you guys ever did that in school but I'd be I'd be out there I'd say like the announcements then we'd do the O Canada and we'd say a prayer and I got involved in that at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do but I knew I enjoyed that and then when I went to high school grade 11 and 12 I had a co-op placement at a local radio station, which just so happened to be at the college that I ended up going to. And then I did I did a news, sports, weather updates, just volunteering my time and getting my course credits. And then the program director there was like, you know, if, you, you're, if you're interested in this, like you can come to this program. And then I was like, yeah, I'd love to. It was literally a five minute car ride from our house. So I did it. I took the program at Mohawk College and uh, three years later I graduated with a diploma in broadcast journalism and communications media. Wow so here is this girl that comes to Canada not knowing the language at all Mm -hmm. and an opportunity or a moment kind of sparks an interest that you then follow and pursue. At what point were you like you know what this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? So high school my high school yearbook quote with my photo says look for me on city news no word of a lie i joke about it all the time so you knew i knew in high school i i wanted to do that we actually did one of those tests where you answer a bunch of questions and it tells you what you're meant to do and i hate math and i don't like science and i'm not good at either of those two things and geography was always like meh so english i loved english i loved literature i loved being able to learn. And still to this day, my grammar isn't the best, but I think that comes from speaking different languages. Mm -hmm. Again, when you translate something from Syrian to English, you speak the way that you are raised to say it in Assyrian. Oftentimes my news producer will say like, you are saying this as if though it's in a different language. I need you to switch it around. So yeah, but uh, to be honest, it was in high school. I knew I wanted to do this and I wrote it in my yearbook. I don't know if I wrote it to kind of hold myself accountable for it. But after I graduated college, I took my first 
media job in radio in St. Catharines, which is about an hour away from Hamilton. It was a weekend morning news, weather, and traffic, and it required me to be there for 4.30 a.m., Saturday morning and Sunday morning, and I worked till noon. It was just a part-time job. At the same time, I was working at No Frills Grocery Store. I was a cashier, so I would go and do this, and then I'd leave at noon, I'd drive to Hamilton, I'd start my shift at No Frills at one o'clock, and I did both of those for at least two years. My first media job was in radio, and then while I was doing that, the drive to Niagara Falls, I'm sure you've made it, there's a point along the drive where you can see across the lake, the CN Tower in the distance mm-hmm. on a beautiful day, mm-hmm. you could see it. I would look over and I'm like, that's where I wanna be. Like I. I am tired of making this drive. I need to make that transition into a major market. Mm -hmm. So I applied to City News for an assignment editor position. And I went and did the interview and I walked in the building. And the building was uh, Queen and John, right downtown. I'd grown up watching City News. I'd grown up watching much music. And so just the atmosphere was so exciting. I was so happy to do the interview. And I did not get the job. And I was like, darn it. I even told them about my quote. It was at the place I had said, look for me on City News. And I was like, this, this is not good. And it wasn't until a year later, the same news producer that had interviewed me called me out of the blue and said, hey, Rita, um, I don't know if you remember me. It's so-and-so from City News. I would love to have you back. I might have a job opportunity for you. And so I was just elated. I was so excited because they say to you all the time, like, well, keep your resume on file. And you're like, yeah, yeah, sure you will. But she actually kept my resume on file. I went in and it wasn't even an interview this time around. She just gave me the job. (laughs) Now, granted, I should tell you the job was like not ideal it was overnight weekends so i would go in for midnight i worked 12 hours until noon and my first tv job like this was for city news channel 7 was that i was overnight assignment editor and i had no idea what that role entailed i just wanted so badly to work for this company that i was like i'll take it i don't mind and at the time the pay grade was $5 more than what I made in radio. So I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> so then I start working there and the job entailed listening to police, ambulance and fire scanners. So, and back then they weren't encrypted. And that means like you could literally hear every call that would come through mm. the dispatch center. And then you would filter out if there was a homicide, if there was a, some sort of stabbing, shooting, fire, whatever it was. And then you would dispatch your camera people to go cover this. And then when they would come back, you would write up a summary of what was there. And then the news would air it the next day or whatever on our website. I did that for two years. And it was one of the hardest things I did, not because of the job itself with the hours. I don't think it's normal to work 12 hour overnight shift that starts at midnight. Like people do seven to sevens, nurses do it all the time. I applaud people who could do it. I just, it's, I'm not like, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. I was really young. I, I would have been maybe 20 when I did it. Oh, wow. So it wasn't like at that time you're, you know what I mean? You're fine. But I also missed out on two, like two years of my life at that stage where I'm like my friends would go out and there was weddings. Yeah, right, because that's prime time to yeah, go out. Yeah, <laughs> to go out. And I was not I was not doing any of that. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm here for a reason. I remember there'd be nights where I'd be like driving to work and I would just bawl my eyes out and I'd be like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is such a difficult job. And by morning, I was exhausted that some days I would like 
sleep in my car before I would even drive because I was so tired. So then another opportunity came up at City News and it was a full-time position in the media archive department, which was basically everything that was shot on camera, we would have to input it in the system and shot list it for future use. So basically if, if you know Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he handed out coats to new refugees, I would literally sit there and I'd shot list it. So like Prime Minister Trudeau, handing out coats to newcomers from Syria, things like that. I did that for a couple of years. And you would like categorize each you of those? You would categorize or, okay. everything, date it, all that. It was a really great way to get to know the industry because mm -hmm. everything that went on the news came through you. Mm -hmm. So for three years of doing that, and those hours were normal. When I say normal, I mean better than overnights. They were evenings. Right. So and this was all behind the scenes. Behind huh? the scenes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did that and that was full time, which is why I decided to take that job. I guess pay grade wise, it was a step below what I was doing before, but the job I was doing as an assignment editor was part-time weekend overnights. And I was like, I'm done. I need to switch over to something more normal. So I did that for three years. And then the day side assignment editor quit. And the same producer that had hired me came back to me and said, Rita, I want you back in this department full-time. Here's the schedule. Will you take it? And I jumped at the opportunity. I took it because I loved assignment editing. It was such a rush to constantly be in the know and to hear some of the calls that would come through to try and send your camera person and your reporter to beat the competition. It's just a really unique job in the, in the newsroom. Everybody comes through you. Everybody goes out through like your dispatch. It was really, really neat. Um, and I also got to work on breakfast television. So some of my shifts were in the morning, like with Kevin Frankish and Dina Pugliese. And it was just really neat. Like I worked all the different shifts around the clock at City News um, before I was like, you know what? I need to make the jump to in front of the camera. And unfortunately, in a major market like that, if you don't have on-camera experience, they're not going to take a risk with you and do that. So on-camera experience means you have reported in a major or like a smaller market before you can do mm. the reporting on a major market. And Toronto's a major market. So I knew I had to put together a demo and I knew I had to start volunteering somewhere like a small local station where I could get that on-air experience. So I did that with Rogers Television. Did you have a mentor at all in this process or were you kind of just winging it? As I you were was going. It. Yeah, I was winging it. There were a few speakers that had come to our school during my college days. Like I, one of them was Alex Pearson. She had come. She was a anchor at City News, and she had kind of told us her journey and everything. And uh, something that they really kind of tell you when you're in college in a program that's journalism is like, this is not easy. You have to have thick skin, and not everybody makes it. Just in our program, we started off with 50 students and only 24 graduated and they just dropped like flies because it requires a lot out of you and you do miss out on a big portion of your life trying to give this industry everything. So no mentor, but I did look up to a few people in the industry for sure. And I mean, I could imagine that a lot of people dropped off too because of while it was exciting to you is the component where it's just things are moving really, really fast. You need to be at certain places or, or pick up on certain news topics before anybody else gets to it. And so that's, I'm sure, not cut out for mm -hmm. anybody to do. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. A lot of people don't like that. I thrive on deadlines and on pressure. 
cliche. I work well under pressure. I love breaking news. Like I've covered a ton of different stories in the last five years. I've been with CTV news. My favorite is when they're like, this is happening, go out and do it. In Toronto, that's a common everyday thing. In London, it's a rarity, right? Mm. Cause it's such a small city in comparison to Toronto. But when it does happen, that's my favorite beat. And so, for example, when in Toronto, when that would happen, would there be somebody on the team that would then have to brief you on everything that is happening with that particular topic before you go and present on it? So I'll give you an example. One of the biggest breaking news stories when I was on the assignment desk came just before my shift was ending. One night I was working the evening shift, so it was 2.30 till 11.30. Um, it was around 10 p.m. and I heard on the scanners that there was a shooting and Initially, you don't respond right away. You have to keep listening to it. The call will come in quickly if it is a major, what we call a hot shot. So initially it came in as a shooting and then there was six victims and there was 10 victims and there was 12, 13, 19 victims shot, two people dead, huge. It was a gang related shooting at a barbecue in a rough neighborhood in Scarborough. This all came through me before anyone in the newsroom knew about it. But as it came through, I was on the computer, I was sending out hotshot emails, like breaking news, listening to scanners, there's reports of this happening, this is who I'm sending. Anytime it's a big story like that, and that was a, that was a mass shooting, you need to source everyone. It's like all hands on deck. Mm. I had one camera person. Wow. I had to call all my guys that live in the area. I was like, you gotta go, there's no choice. I had to call in reporters who were sleeping. So you are in charge of making sure the bodies get there to cover the story. Which and, can be stressful too though. Oh my no. gosh, 100% because oh you can't get a hold of people. Right. There's people who are And it's hesitant. all time sensitive. Yes, and it was 10 p.m. We go to air at 11. So in this particular situation, I'm on the phone. I was on three phones at once and a walkie-talkie and I'm dispatching people and I call the um, police media spokesperson at the time it was Wendy, and I was like, Wendy, you gotta hold off on that presser. My guy's super close. Don't go live to air with it on our competition network because I need you just to hold off for a bit. As I'm talking to her, I can watch her on the other network, like walking up to the podium. And so that, things like that, that, that was like a loss to you. You're like, no. Meanwhile, there's people literally like dying and they're trying to survive. But to me, you don't think that way. It's not that you're happy this is happening it's that you don't have time to process it in like a oh my goodness this is sad there's none of that there's how do we cover this now to get the best visuals clips like witness clips cop clips find out what's happening take it to air wow yeah that's intense yeah, it was really it was one of my favorite jobs but you loved doing it i loved doing it and it gave you a lot of control over what was shot mm -hmm. what was put on air yeah. um editorial wise like i learned so much in that role which is what led me to my current job and my career where i am today i always say had i not done that at city news i could not have been where i am today i learned so much just in that time frame, eight years at City News, that I was able to carry that into my interview and convince a news director to hire me with no major market reporting experience and no weather experience either. So based on my experience in Toronto, I was kind of like, you know what? I need to make a move in my career. I can't keep doing this if I really am serious about becoming a reporter. Um, I took the necessary steps. I got one of my cameramen to come out with me. We did a demo and this would have been 
I tried that a couple of times, but I always put it on the back burner. When things changed was when I had my son. So I got pregnant six months after getting married. And at the time we were living in Toronto downtown and everything was happening so quickly. And I was like, you know what? We need to reconsider where we're living and what we're doing in our careers. So I took a year off on maternity leave when I had my son, August 13th till August 14th, sorry, August 2013 to August 2014. As I was nearing the end of my maternity leave, I started to panic. I had no jobs that were local. We had moved to London at this point. And what brought the move from Toronto to London? My husband's family is all in mm-hmm. London. It's where he was born and he grew up. Um, he's also a Syrian, but his family had come long time ago and so um, they had kind of been around for a while so his family was in London and I said you know we'll, we'll, the support will be great with a and child London, and London Ontario just to Sorry. clarify yes yes I should say <laughs> that, that was the one thing I was very confused about when people would just like name drop <laughs> no, London no. casually or like here. Paris Ontario Paris yeah yes. very fancy no definitely not Osher once was like I'll take you to London and Paris and Toronto <laughs> and one day I'm like what I he's know. like no oh, that's Ontario hilarious. yes London Ontario is where my husband grew up and so we moved there when I had my son I was like I'm gonna get a job locally it's gonna be great there is a station in London Ontario CTV News I can approach the news director there so I tried uh, three months after my son was born I got in touch with the news director and I was like I'm interested in this this is my background he's like you know what I don't have anything right now but if you come in we'll meet we'll discuss if anything comes up in the future I'll let you know so I kind of dropped that there and then nearing the end of my maternity leave I knew I had to go back to Toronto I had the option of quitting and just sitting at home but I did not want that I did not want to have no job and search for a job so what I ended up doing was I would commute every day from London Ontario to Toronto and what's that commute like? two hours but on Mondays I would stay at my parents who are in Hamilton so I'd drive Sunday night stay in Hamilton on Monday, go to work for 6 a.m. So I would leave Hamilton at four, go to Burlington, take the transit, take the streetcar, walk up. It was it was the worst four months of my life. I was a zombie. And on top of that, I was missing my kids, my child growing up. Like my son Nero, who's now six at the time was one. So from one until he turned 18 months old, I barely saw him and that was the hardest thing in my life and I was slowly going into like this deep dark place and I was like I was watching the show in the morning and one of the people I worked with the weatherman he was such a good person he quoted uh, something on Twitter and I was monitoring Twitter that was a part of the assignment editing gig so I was monitoring Twitter and it said you are in the place you are right now because of decisions you've made in your life if you want something to change you're the only person who can change that something along those lines so i literally hear that oh my gosh i just it hit me and i was like what am i doing like i can't complain about this i've put myself here every decision i've made in my life has led me to this point if i want to change this i'm gonna have to take steps to change it so i went on job search boards and every every day i would search 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 And bam, there was a part-time position at CTV News in London, Ontario with the news director that had already met. It was weekend weather presenter and occasional backfill for reporting. I had zero weather experience. 
at the time I wasn't even very good with my geography knowledge of, of the area that I'd have to present the weather, nor did I know anything about weather. And I was like, you know what? You can't lose or win if you don't try. So oh, I applied and I got the interview. And when I went into that interview in the car, I said to myself, you, this is yours to lose. People might have more experience than you. People might have more education than you, but this is yours to lose. Like literally I went in there, there was two news directors. It was the one for London and the one for Windsor. And I was like, listen, I answered all the questions. They were really impressed by my Rolodex, the contacts I had and the experience I had in Toronto, but they were hesitant because again, I didn't have that on air experience, but I had put a really good demo together. And demo is when you, you know, you tape yourself doing a story or you present in front of the weather screen. I had my people in Toronto help me put something together, but it had never gone to air. It was just for show so they could see what I looked like on air. And before the interview was done, I was like, listen, you might find somebody who has more experience than me, who is more qualified to be a weather presenter and a reporter, but you won't find anybody that'll work as hard as I will because I want this. This is, this is something that I want and this will change my life. And because it'll change my life, I will give it everything I have. Like there, I have no options. So I kind of laid it all out on the table and then I went off and that was it. And I worked with someone who worked with this news director and I told her, I'm like, listen, Anna, you got to put in a good word for me. I need this job. And they were good friends. They had worked in a different city together. The media industry is very small in Canada, even though it's big, it's everybody knows everyone. So she had put in a good word for me and then come Friday, it was December 23rd. I was coming back from my morning shift. My mom was picking me up from the ghost station in Hamilton downtown and I get a phone call and, and it was the news director and he's like, Rita, thank you so much for applying. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. and he's like, well, I just want to offer you the job. Oh my God, Odessa, I bawled my eyes out. And then he was like, well, you get a clothing allowance and you get your hair done and you get all of this. And I was like, oh my God, I just wanted, I just, I take anything at this point, but thank you. And so I just, it was the, one of the best moments besides when my kids were born and when I got married that like, you know, when something changes your life and it's been five years since then, it was just phenomenal oh timing. Gosh, Rita, you are a total go-getter. Yeah, like thank even you. when you were applying for that job and you had no experience in it for so many people, they look mm -hmm. at jobs and they're like, mm, I'm, I'm underqualified. There's no way that they're going to do this. I'm wasting my time. Mm -hmm. But you, it was evident that you didn't have that language built up in your head. So in your mind, if they were going to ask you information regarding the weather, like mm -hmm. how are you going to present it? And how did you prepare for that? Great question. And you made it a great point. A lot of times when you see job postings and they're like five years of experience or university degree, a bachelor in this, a master's in that, and people get deterred. Now, because of that, I thought to myself, they might not have anyone who applies, right? Mm -hmm. There's always that. Mm -hmm. And if they do have people that apply, there might be something I have that those people don't. And it, when you go into a job interview, you're selling yourself, right? You're a product, especially in our industry. And for me, it was how can I sell myself? Luckily, they didn't ask me about the science behind okay. weather because I, I should clarify, I am not a meteorologist. That takes about three to five years of schooling, depending on where you go. Mm. I am a weather specialist mm. and a news anchor and a reporter, which I am qualified to do. That's what I went to school for. But the weather presentation comes from you, do, you give the basics, right? What am I going to need tomorrow? Is it going to rain? Is it going to snow? Is okay. it going to be sunny? So that I knew. Yeah, yeah. And the rest would come with learning. And I also am a true believer. If you have confidence in yourself 
and you know that you are able to learn, you will succeed in whatever it is that you're trying to do, right? Granted, there's the exception of being a doctor or a lawyer. There's things you need to know that you need to study for. But if it's something that is, you know, attainable just by being a good learner, you can get that. You can get that in your life because that's what school is all about. If you think about it, they want to know if you could learn. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's what the workforce is. And so you've been with um, CTV for how long now? Five years. Five years. Yeah. In January of 2020, it'll be five years. Oh my goodness. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. And congratulations on that. Thank you. And so it seems like even within your role, you've had the ability and opportunity to utilize it in a way that also helps you share a little bit about your personal life and personal moments in your life, right? Like Mm -hmm. you've had the opportunity to blog through them and there's a segment that has recently come out with regards to moms so if you could talk a little bit about that and what opportunities have led you to contribute in these kind of spaces so with my current role having started part-time just doing reporting and weather presenting I am not the type of person who's like well that's not my job Mm -hmm. it's not in my job category I've never been like that I will do everything as long as it makes me happy and I can do it the right way. So anytime there was an opportunity, anytime I had a meeting with my boss to kind of review my uh, progress or my future goals, I would say, you know what? I want to do this. I want to try this. So after being there for a year of reporting and weather, I told him I'd like to try my hand at anchoring. And we had a pre-taped news program. It was half an hour. It was done on weekends. I said, if you don't have anyone who wants to do this, I'd love to do it. He's like, you know what? Put together a demo. Let me see it and we'll go from there. I did it, he loved it. I took over that half hour show. And then down the road, just opportunities came up because again, I find in a smaller market, there's more opportunity for that to happen. So recently we started a a online segment called Media Moms. It's me and a couple of my colleagues. We discuss things that impact mothers, fathers, caregivers of all kind. It's called Media Moms because it's a bunch of moms that work in the media, but it's relatable to any person who's taking care of a child or raising a child really and then prior to that before my daughter was born I was I was pregnant in between my daughter and my son at four months I lost my pregnancy and I think in our community as Syrians and in general it's it's a faux pas to talk about pregnancy loss it's it's so common yet women shy away from talking about it and until you talk about it whether it's in private or in public you don't really know how many people are going through the same thing you are so infertility you know miscarriages stillborns all of that it impacts women every single day and it's heartbreaking so when i was going through my loss i decided that you know as hard as this is i'm going to talk to people i talked to a friend of mine who had lost a child at seven months. I talked to another friend who had a miscarriage. And when, when I would mention something, people would, would come up with their own stories of how they knew somebody else. So I got an idea and I was like, you know what? I have a platform and on this platform, I'm gonna use it to blog about pregnancy after loss. So I had already had my son and I pitched the idea to my producer and he's like, you know, this is a great idea. If you feel comfortable sharing this information with the audience and with people, I said, yes. My hesitation again was the Assyrian community because it, it is a private thing to talk about and discuss, but it has been welcomed and I've gotten great feedback and it reached such a wide audience 
I had such wonderful feedback, people sending me emails, messages, Facebook, Twitter, private notes written in, to me in my at my desk. It was unbelievable. People would be like, thank you for sharing this because my wife went through this. We went through this. Um, we're going through this right now. So again, using that platform to talk about things like pregnancy loss and getting over that, I think was so wonderful, right? Another thing I've been able to use my platform for is the Syrian refugee crisis that happened a few years ago in Syria. I happened to be new at CTV and my husband's family is from Syria. We're from Barwar, but they all came from Tiltamar. And my mother-in-law was like, oh my goodness, they have held captive 250 people along the Khabur. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, why aren't we seeing any of this? It's really hard to get news from the Middle East, let alone to get factual news from the Middle East. Mm. We have to tread lightly when you see things, especially today's day and age when you have Twitter, social media of all kind. Anyone can take up a phone and report information that's not valid. So I did a little bit of research and my mother-in-law has family in Syria still. Her uncle... May he rest in peace. He was a priest back there and her cousin's also a priest. And so they were trying to help these people. So word got around and I went to my news director and I was like, do you know that there's a big Assyrian community here in London, Ontario, and these people have family that have been held captive by ISIS in this region. And he's like, nope, we had no idea. So we do our search at work. We use different programs. We find footage of the crisis that's happening and we uh, confirm the information that we have through the grapevine and so I start the ball rolling I tell him you know what let's do a segment on this because before I came to CTV London people probably didn't even know who Assyrians were they oftentimes they confuse anyone from the Middle East for just being they call us Arab and that is so wrong in so many ways so I wanted to let them know who we were as a people. This was an opportunity, unfortunately, not the best story to tell, but but we had to talk about it and we had to generate some sort of attention to what was happening to these people's family back home. So we did it. And ever since then, he has, again, my news director has given me the opportunity. If there's ever a story involving Assyrian people that I have that platform, I can do it. So after that, a year later, thank God, most of those refugees were let go. Unfortunately, there were a couple of tragedies where ISIS killed a few of the people that they held captive, but for the most part, they were able to let them go. Those people ended up, some of them coming to London, Ontario. Oh, so we had, there. you got it. We, we had follow-up stories and some of them went to Lebanon, right? When you leave war-torn countries, you either go to Turkey or Lebanon or wherever you can seek shelter and safety. One particular story that stands in my mind, and this, this made me feel like I was able to help our community was this one family that the mother, father, and their three children lived in Lebanon. It was their bridge to come to Canada. They had tried to get their family here to sponsor them. There was a little bit of backlog. There's a huge difference between government-sponsored refugees and the refugees who are privately sponsored. And at the time that our government was making a promise to bring the Assyrians from Syria, it was government-sponsored refugees. So a lot of... And our- that was that specific, like Assyrians from Syria? 
Well, Assyrians from Syria were part of the refugee surge, okay. but unfortunately they were not registered as GARs, which is government-sponsored refugees. They were being sponsored privately by their family. So the road for them was a little bit trickier. Mm. So they had to like apply and they had to get a sponsored family here, had to put mm -hmm. up thousands of dollars. I believe uh, for a family of four, it was like 15 grand to just come. You had to go through a church. It was a big process. So this one particular family, they had left Syria to Lebanon and they had family in London. They were waiting to come. And unfortunately, the father got hit by a car and he died. And he left behind his wife and his three kids. It was just devastating. And their paperwork was in the process to come here. So when their family approached me, they're like, we don't know what to do. We're at our ends because his wife and kids have no form of income. Um, and they're just, they're like, life is deteriorating. We don't know what to do to process their paper. So I immediately thought, let's do a story. Let's get the government involved. The local government at the time was uh, one of our local MPPs. I reached out to him. I said, listen, there's this one family. You need to meet with them. I know there's thousands of people trying to escape, but can you give this one family, which is within your constituency, some time? He met with them and a week later, their paperwork processed. They came on a flight to London, reunited with their family, the saddest welcome ever because the grandkids saw their grandma and she was bawling her eyes out, talking about how her son's not there, but she was so happy they were, oh, I can't tell this story without getting emotional, but it was just something unbelievable so any opportunity that i've had in the last five years to either help our Assyrian community in london or just kind of let people know who we are i've taken it because without the right platform people won't know who we are absolutely and what an amazing opportunity that you have a platform to be able to speak about this and that you have a supportive boss and, mm -hmm. and community behind you that supports the opportunity for you to do that as well as other components such as having a platform to discuss parenthood what is the assyrian community like in london ontario if you could paint a picture for people who may not be so familiar so we have a church in london ontario they've had it for years and years my husband is actually um from the Malik Ismail family and just in London. There's like, oh, I can't even tell you how many Malik Ismails. Oftentimes through work when people will meet me, they'll throw a name out and they're like, are you related to this Ismail? And I'll joke and say, yes, I am related to them wow. because there's a huge Malik Ismail family. But outside of that, I, I think our congregation has like, last time I talked to Father Talo, it was about it has grown drastically in the last few years because of the Syrians that have come from Syria and Iraq. I want to say a couple of thousand. It's not big, but it's a tight-knit community. It's only the only church we have. What church is it? Assyrian Church of the East. Okay. Uh, so the Syrian Christian community of London, wonderful, great. I wish it had a little bit more of the advancements that the Hamilton community has and getting the youth together. Mm -hmm. So I know they're working on that because again, it's so important that our children grow up knowing where they came from, knowing who they are. And it's a bonus if they can speak, read or write Assyrian. Mm -hmm. They're working on that. It is, it is a struggle, but it's one that they're tackling. There are places like Australia who are far beyond where we are 
even Hamilton, I know some wonderful things are being done, but as far as the community in London, it's a work in progress, but it's there. And so how long have you been in London now? Uh, six talk? years. Six years. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And do you foresee yourself being there, like planning your roots there, yes. or it's kind of just it's funny wherever life that. takes you? <laughs> wherever our life takes us. Right now, we actually live next door to my in-laws by choice. I have okay. the best in-laws in the world, <laughs> um, and they help out with my crazy work schedule. Like I don't have a normal Monday to Friday schedule. My weekend is Monday, Tuesday. I work Wednesdays to Sunday. They're wonderful. They're there for our children. My husband has a bit of a weird evening schedule, so the support and family and I'm sure you'll get to know this when you have children is unbelievable and as long as we have each other I think that I can succeed in my career with that support from my in-laws and from my husband and we can also just be successful like family support is everything and we have that in London granted down the road if the station I work at closes down or it goes in a different route, my career, it's, it's a question, does it end there or do I try and move elsewhere? I have applied to places in the States. Before my daughter was born, I applied to um, a network in San Diego. I've always loved California and I wanted to move there. So I was like, you know what, I'm gonna apply. I actually got two rounds of interviews done. Um, unfortunately, I'm not an American citizen, so they'd have to sponsor me and they needed someone immediately. And just that learning process of what it would take to move there is a bit discouraging. Down the road, I might go the route of hiring like a, like a media lawyer or an agent, but right now we're happy and content in London. So we'll see where it takes us. For somebody who is exploring the possibility of entering the media industry, what type of advice would you provide to them or insight that only those that are actually in the industry truly know what it's like? Good question. So they've probably heard this before, especially if you're a student in journalism school, um, don't give up. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle to get your foot in the door, to make contacts, especially with the way the media is going in Canada. And We're what's doing- that? It's, it's more digital, right? Mm. Like, have you watched the news on TV at six o'clock? Only no. if I'm at my in-laws. You got it. And that's our, that's our audience. It's people who are in their early 50s to like 80s. So a lot of our viewers are seniors who just don't want to make the switch to digital. So we have learned to become digital journalists as well. I did a story today before I came here. It went on the six o'clock newscast and then it went on digital copy on our website. We are driving digital, digital, digital because that's where everything is. You can get everything on your phone. Uh, with that being said, don't be discouraged to apply to digital jobs or to TV jobs. It's not dying a fast death. It's eventually going to shift. But in the States, it's a completely different story. And I'm sure it is the same way in Europe or Australia. In Canada, it's a little bit of a struggle with funding, especially mm-hmm. since the major networks are owned by communications networks like Bell and Rogers, right? So things are changing, they're shifting, but don't be discouraged by that. Find something that you wanna do. We're actually hiring at CTV London for a new news reporter slash digital reporter. So don't give up try to apply to those jobs you don't think you might have the experience because you might have the education you might have a bonus that you speak a different language 
That is huge, whether it's Assyrian, Arabic, whatever language you speak. And then also volunteer, volunteer every opportunity you get because that will take you to where you need to be. That's what got me my job at City News, volunteering at Rogers. That's what gets a lot of people in the door, especially in media, because they need to see that you have experience. And additionally, it seems like there's a level of flexibility too. Like you have to be open to do possibly work part-time initially or have odd hours just to get your foot in the door. And then once you're there, then you can sort of move around. For sure. And you know what? That's something that you have to be willing to do right off the bat and maybe even later in your career. I don't have a normal schedule. I work weekends. As a matter of fact, I anchor the weekends 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock, which means weekends are out of the question for me. I spend my mornings with my children and my husband. My evenings go to work. You have to be able to adapt to the different work schedules. It's not Monday to Friday. It's not 9 to 5. But you will not look at the clock. I have never looked at the clock and been like oh my goodness it's only two o'clock never if I look at the clock I'm like oh my gosh it's only two I only have three hours or my deadline's coming up the rush you get from this job makes up for the awful hours or the fact that you work weekends it's just it's rewarding in its own way at the same rate it's a very it's a thankless job that is rewarding based on what you make of it. So if you decide to become idle in any role in life, you know, you'll get bored. But if you constantly challenge yourself and you're constantly looking for new opportunities and you don't want the cookie cutter Monday to Friday, then this is for you. If you are not willing to work odd hours and long shifts and weird shifts, then I don't think you're cut out for journalism, for sure. Maybe something else. Maybe something else. (laughs) I actually wanted to be a teacher when I was a really young kid. Like in grade school, I wanted to be a teacher. My sister wanted to be an actress, my older sister. So we always joke that she ended up becoming a teacher and I'm on TV. So... It's funny. funny how that works. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Rita. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.